Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Wednesday. Major story of the day, of course, is the uh, Washington Post report that uh, the Justice Department is investigating Trump's actions in the January 6th criminal probe. That during the grand jury investigation, they have been focusing on Donald Trump, what Donald Trump said, what he did, what was going on in these meetings. Now, this all sounds very, very promising. And then, of course, we also had Attorney General Merrick Garland sitting down with NBC's Lester Holt. And this is what the attorney general had to say last night. Look, we pursue justice without fear or favor. We intend to hold everyone, anyone who was criminally responsible for the events surrounding January 6th, for any attempt to interfere with the lawful transfer of power from one administration to another, accountable. That's what we do. We don't pay any attention to other uh, issues with respect to that. Okay, so good, but I'm, I'm sorry to be the guy raising the caveat. On yesterday's podcast, we talked with uh, Andrew Weissman, a former Department of Justice prosecutor. He said, look, this is all good. There's more than enough evidence to charge uh, Donald Trump uh, criminally, but the clock is running and there's going to be tremendous political pressure on them. If you haven't listened to the podcast from yesterday, you ought to listen to our conversation because I asked Andrew Weissman, I said, so what if they don't go forward with the charges? What if they decide it's too heavy a lift and Trump is returned to the presidency? What would Trump 2.0 look like? And Andrew Weissman said, I don't think I have enough alcohol at home to even fathom that. But we're getting more and more glimpses, again, of what Trump's ideas are for Trump 2.0. Now, there's been a lot of attention to the fact that uh, the former disgraced president returned to the scene of the crime, came back to D.C. to speak to a group of, uh, of, of adoring fans. And, you know, because he didn't spend most of his time airing his grievances, uh, some of the commentators in the punditocracy described Trump's remarks as a policy address. It, it was not a policy address because, folks, Donald Trump does not do policy. What he does, though, is play some of his greatest hits. And once again, he laid out kind of his an American carnage dystopian view. Let's play a couple of these, these clips, uh, in, including his uh, deep enthusiasm for killing drug dealers. I mean, this, again, keep in mind that this is the pro-life president who is very enthusiastic over the prospect of quickly executing drug dealers as they do. He doesn't name them by name, but as they do in places like China, the Philippines, this is what the president said about that. And the penalties should be very, very severe. If you look at countries throughout the world, the ones that don't have a drug problem are those that institute a very quick trial death penalty sentence for drug dealers. It sounds horrible, doesn't it? But you know what? That's the ones that don't have any problem. It doesn't take 15 years in court. Mm. It goes quickly and you quickly. absolutely you execute a drug dealer and you'll save 500 lives because they kill yeah. on average 500 people. Yeah, um, this is not something new from uh, Donald Trump. By the way, I, I, I described him as the president. Obviously, he is the uh, disgraced, defeated, twice impeached uh, former president. This is not new for, for him. You know, he's repeatedly praised the policies of countries like the Philippines where the former president uh, Duterte 
uh, is estimated to have murdered more than 6,000 drug dealers in one year. And Donald Trump looks at that and goes, cool, that's that'd be great. Um, also, uh, Trump went on to say that this was the American First Summit. He called for uh, federal power to send the National Guard to restore order and to secure the peace without having to wait for the approval of some governor that thinks it's politically incorrect to call them in. The crowd loved that. Uh, this is the leader of the party of states' rights, basically saying, you know, I want to be able to uh, send these troops into these cities without worrying about what the local governor has to say. He also got big applause when he mocked, uh, you know, pretended to be a transgender weightlifter after a bit about not wanting transgendered athletes in women's sports. And so, you know, he, there he is, you know, with his little hands, you know, trying to show what it would be like to, you know, lift weights. Of course, Donald Trump, I don't think has ever lifted anything heavier than money. And then, uh, and this has gotten a lot of attention, his one big policy was to call for massive tent cities. This is hard to not sound like it's a parody, that he is, you know, besides the summary execution of drug dealers, he is proposing these massive internment camps for the homeless outside of cities. And clearly he... He wants to sound like he's given a great deal of thought to this policy to deal with the, the scourge of homelessness. Let's play that. And then you look at the tents and the homeless and you say, what's happening to this great bastion? Perhaps some people will not like hearing this, but the only way you're going to remove the hundreds of thousands of people and maybe throughout our nation, millions of millions, people we're talking millions, about millions. and help make our cities clean, safe, and beautiful again, is to open up large parcels of inexpensive land in the outer reaches of the cities, bring medical professionals, including doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, drug rehab specialists, build permanent bathrooms and other oh, facilities, make them good, make them hard, but build them fast, and create thousands and thousands of high-quality tents, which can be done in one day, one day. And you have to move people out. Now, some people say, oh, that's so horrible. No, what's horrible is what's happening now. Because huh. now they're in tents, but most of them aren't even tents that function. So he didn't explain how he would get these people out, what the removal process would be, whether it would be voluntary, whether it would be involuntary. He also didn't explain how this would necessarily, quote unquote, solve the problem other than to round up um, millions of people and presumably with some sort of compulsion, forcibly uh, have them sent to these camps, which would have permanent bathrooms, but obviously temporary tents. Um, so I, I guess, you know, this is where. It's like, what exactly is the policy here other than more Trumpy, you know, more sort of Trumpy, irritable gestures? And look, really, what, what says American greatness more than massive internment camps for homeless people, uh, executions of drug dealers, border walls, federal troops in the city's coups and and the mockery of sexual minorities? Am I right? Um, and of course, the crowd was eating it up and is anxious to put uh, Donald Trump uh, back in the White House. Uh, well, on the same theme, this is taking place, of course, in the midst of these January 6th the hearings, which are not done yet. 
I thought it was interesting watching all the Republican politicians trooping to uh, be the be the opening acts for Trump's uh, appearance uh, yesterday. You would never know from uh, Kevin McCarthy's appearance or his comments uh, that the nation is learning about uh, what uh, what uh, Donald Trump did and did not do uh, surrounding the criminal conspiracy to overthrow the presidential election. Uh, but on today's show, we're going to look at the January 6th hearings and we're going to look at it through the lens of the January 6th hearings as compelling reality TV shows, which again, looks at it through the lens that Donald Trump might look at those hearings. I'm really looking forward to talking with today's guest. James Ponowazek wrote one of the definitive books early on in the Trump uh, administration, Audience of One, Donald Trump Television and the Fracturing of America. Uh, James, welcome back on the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Charlie. James is the chief television critic for the New York Times. Uh, and uh, I remember you and I talked about your book at the time, which I thought was one of the most insightful uh, takes about uh, the media landscape and the way that Donald Trump has, is really a creature of it. And also a, I hate to say the word master practitioner, but you really can't understand Donald Trump without seeing him through the lens of a political culture that is shaped and often dominated by television? Absolutely. I mean, he was, you know, he was a media celebrity before he was a politician. He was really a media celebrity before he was a businessman. And, you know, you, you don't, you don't get that big without being good at using the media in some way. So, well, last night I was um, I was on one of the cable uh, shows and was asked about the uh, whether or not there was a shift in the conservative media coverage of Donald Trump in the wake of the January 6th hearings. And of course, uh, the you know, the exhibit A, uh, the exhibit A and B uh, uh, Wall Street Journal editorial ripping Donald Trump, the New York Post breaking bad on Donald Trump, other print publications on the right breaking bad on Donald Trump. And I guess my main caveat was it's one thing for right wing print publications to break bad on Donald Trump, but things are not really going to change until you see that trickle down into Fox News prime time and the other outlets that uh, Donald Trump has weaponized so effectively over the years. Do you agree with that? I mean, how, how do you how do you parse out what's going on right now? Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal, Rupert Murdoch's New York Post, breaking seriously bad against Donald Trump. But I'm not seeing that really in the in the world dominated by Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram. What do you think? Uh, no, yeah, I, I'm pretty much with you on that. I mean, Fox News is still the, the front of the shop there. Uh, you know, it's going to get attention from political pundits and other journalists if the New York Post editorial page turns on Trump. Uh, but you know, it, it's 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 really going to make a difference if you start seeing that in Fox primetime. And and you know, I think that Fox, like any TV network, it's it's led by its viewership. It's led by its viewership as as much as it leads its viewership. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know, there there has just got to be this constant 
as you saw when Fox changed toward Trump over the course of the 2016 primary, this kind of constant monitoring of the feedback loop to see kind of where the audience is on it now, you know, uh, you know, I think if you look at Fox and its position toward kind of Republican politics right now, maybe you could argue that they've gone in much more on Ron DeSantis mm-hmm. over the past year. You know, so maybe that that is that is, you know, more of a, a, a bets hedging move. But it's going to be a much huger deal if somebody in Fox primetime, you know, Casts a, 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 a slightly negative light on Donald Trump, much less, you know, suggests that Joe Biden won the 2020 election uh, than if the Wall Street Journal editorial board does. This seems like a crucial point. The distinction you're making here is that outlets like Fox are really driven by their audience, that it's bottom up rather than having the content dictated from from on high. There's a certain audience capture that takes place in the media. Is that true? Yeah, I think it's a feedback loop. You know, I think that, you know, Fox is not powerless in this. I mean, I think Rupert Murdoch's thing in, in journalism has long been, you know, kind of give the people what they want and the most red meat version of that. And that's been very successful with it. But that also comes, you know, with a certain risk that, you know, your your audience kind of just evolves out of your control, you know, or that there is a danger in crossing them. So I certainly think that particularly once we saw again in the 2016 primary that there was only so much that, you know, quote unquote, elite conservative media opinion could do to move the conservative electorate. You know, I think there was a lesson learned that the tail was wagging the dog or the dog is driving the car, <laughs> which, which, which crazy metaphor that I'm looking for. But, but you know, that, that basically, to some extent, the audience programs Fox. Well, I wanted to talk to you about the piece that you wrote about the January 6th hearings. Uh, you, you wrote a column uh, in, in, the, in the Times uh, describing the hearings as water cooler TV. And I, I thought your analysis was really interesting because, you know, I mean, before they started, I think there was a lot of skepticism about whether these hearings would make any difference whatsoever. And, you know, as you point out, you know, investigating a threat to democracy was always going to be important, but it wasn't clear that it was going to be buzzworthy. But you wrote this time it did manage to be buzzworthy. It became water cooler TV. So walk me through that. How did that happen? How did a congressional committee, I mean, look, these things are usually complete, you know, clown car clusterfucks of boredom. And yet they did manage to become a compelling television. So walk me through how those January 6th committees became what you called water cooler TV. I mean, first of all, there was the decision up front that, yeah, this is a television event and we're going to make it as as television. And a former president of ABC News with a lot of experience in producing nonfiction and documentary television was brought in to work on this and oversee it. And, you know, one of the first things that they decided is, yeah, we're going to, we're going to chuck the the talk, talk, talk. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be, you know, 11 hours of going round robin around the committee and everybody takes five minutes to ask questions or, or grandstand. 
and you know you watch somebody lean into a microphone and drink water for 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 five hours or whatever uh you know it's 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 a medium and you know again like this does not need to mean you know dumbing anything down or or reducing your ambitions but you know you you're deciding that you know that you're realizing you're telling the story through a medium that that tells its story largely through image and so graphics are very important video clips are very important uh, you know, it, you need to kind of craft a narrative that people can follow and pick up and get through and know where they are and know where they're going. And so structure was also very important. You know, I found it very interesting that in a way, the committee had sort of some of the same challenges that somebody telling, you know, a serial story in scripted or, or streaming TV or whatever it does, right? Don't get the audience lost. Right. Uh, you know, if somebody has, has just dropped in or they haven't watched in a while, you got to give them a previously on and here's what's coming up. And they, you know, they, they were literally doing that sort of thing in the form of kind of recapping where we've been up to this point in some of the introductions and, you know, giving people guideposts going forward to, you know, where they were going to be going in the rest of the sessions. I thought it was interesting the way you compared it to sort of the the structure of TV miniseries, you know, how they will, you know, dive into the middle of things. They will create storylines. They will create characters. You have the surprise witnesses. It actually had that kind of rhythm. I mean, there were some missteps. There were some, I mean, it wasn't uniformly excellent. But, yeah. you know, as, as you point out, the odds were so strongly against this. I mean, maybe let's go back a little bit. You know, people are jaded. They're exhausted. There's all kinds of studies showing that people are bailing out of the media. I mean, ratings for television are down. I mean, obviously, you have MAGA World, which is hermetically sealed off from having to confront any of, of these things. And yet, you know, looking back on the, you know, eight or nine sessions, they succeeded in drawing an audience for public affairs television. They got other witnesses to come forward. You have some polls suggesting they might have moved a little bit of opinion on Trump. And it was watchable. Yeah. So in part, it was because they used the graphics. They used the clips. They used those 3D models of the executive dining room at the White House. I mean, was there any moment where you sat back and went, gosh, these, these guys really are getting how you construct a television narrative. Was there some moment? Yeah. I, I, I think I think it was when I started seeing the 3D models, I thought, okay, these guys, this is this is interesting. This is next level stuff. That was certainly a thing for me, which which they used early on. And with Cassidy Hutchinson, when she gave her testimony, you know, you're seeing here's how far she is down the hall. It's it's like putting you in the room. You know, here's mm -hmm. how far you know it's it's visually stating here's how close this person is to power. And and I almost felt like, bear with me here for mm -hmm. this crazy analogy, but you watch Game of Thrones. Yeah. So every episode of Game of Thrones opens with these credits where there's a map of Westeros and you come mm -hmm. zooming in and there's a model of Winterfell and King's Landing. And it just, it looks really cool, but it performs a function. Game of Thrones is this complex, sprawling narrative and it is helping situate you in space in this complex story. So you have a sense of, here's how far, you know, this thing that's going on with this character is from that one. Uh, you know, TV audiences often need that. And it was very interesting to see a congressional hearing use that. Uh, another thing that jumped out at me just quickly was a couple, quote unquote, episodes back. 
when <laughs> they were describing the quote unquote unhinged meeting at the yeah. White House between Donald Trump and his, you know, bananas council trying to come up with ways to get the states to seize the machinery of the elections. And there was this 10 minute passage where they told the story almost entirely with video clips mm-hmm. and just brief interjections from whichever representative was leading that part of the testimony. And, and it was like an, an oral history. And I really felt like I, I'm not watching a congressional panel. I'm watching like a really well-produced true crime documentary on Netflix. You know, this is how you tell that kind of story. And that was, you know, that was TV and TV should be TV or else it's it's not going to break through. Well, and as you also point out, you know, casting is is crucial to all of this. These witnesses weren't weren't anti-Trumpers. They weren't never Trumpers. They were, uh, I mean, some of them were, you know, sympathetic outsiders like the, you know, Capitol Police officers. But, you know, you had a, you had supporting characters, you know, yeah. you had Bill Barr, you know, calling Trump's conspiracy claims bullshit. You know, Richard Donahue has been, you know, was acting as deputy attorney general, was telling the story about telling uh, Jeffrey Clark, how about you go back to your office? We'll call you when there's an oil spill. <laughs> yeah, I mean, funny. it was it was spicy and there were interesting and compelling characters developed. Yeah. And the, the spiciness is important. You know, that's, you know, obviously people care about ideas, but people respond to incident and a great story and a voice. And when you're giving people sort of, you know, these recurring characters like this, number one, it, again, it kind of, you know, places you within the, this this network of alliances and characters who are working against or with each other. And also it, it just creates that investment that you get when you're watching TV, a TV show where it's like, oh, it's that guy. That guy's hilarious. I remember this guy. Oh, this guy, that guy's nuts. You know, it, it's, it's, it's presenting people, not just as like, you know, dry figures in a Wikipedia entry, but as living characters who are making decisions that feel real and live and, and impactful. And every show has to have a compelling lead. And do you think it's Liz Cheney? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, within the ensemble, she is your sort of, you know, if you switch the analogy to being like a, a, a you know, procedural or investigative TV show, she's like your your Mulder and your Scully or, you know, your your detective in an episode of Law and Order, uh, you know, kind of leading you through the proceedings. But also with, you know, again, I was, I was just impressed by the uh, the way she drop, would drop these casual zingers that on the one hand were just, you know, sort of sick burns. Like, you know, mm-hmm. offhandedly, the president was taking advice from an apparently inebriated Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Okay, like now on one hand, that, that, that's just funny and, you know, uh, you know, good for you for taking your shot. Uh, but also... Yeah, I don't know if this is conscious or subconscious. You know that's something that's going to get repeated on social media. You know that's something that's going to be, you know, a lead quote in the stories the next day. That's something that's going to generate attention and get people talking. And that focuses attention on the sort of serious meat of your argument. And, you know, there was sort of an element I, I don't want to, you know, say Liz Cheney is quote unquote Trumpian. But, you know, one thing we learned from from Donald Trump is that you know, there is an element of showmanship to politics and that in, in the modern media environment, drawing attention is a powerful thing. Well, speaking of showmanship, I think one of the more extraordinary uh, episodes was last Thursday night when they when they kind of just threw it in the running Josh Hawley meme 
which they yes. dropped in and then took a break. It felt like so social media could catch up so that somebody could put the Benny Hill theme underneath Josh Hawley. But I mean, that was also an example of we're going to throw this out here. It may not be strictly relevant to what we are doing, but this is going to create, you know, this massive social media response. And I thought that yeah. was that was certainly an interesting decision on their part. It really felt like, yeah, OK, here's 10 minutes. Go to work on it. You know, yeah, that's <laughs> and, right. and the Internet did. And there was again, there was just this sort of like. They didn't have to spotlight Josh Hawley, you know, <laughs> running through the hallway. But once you thought of it, you know, how could you how could you not do it? Uh, you know, and again, I just I think that's an example where, OK, number one, you know, it's just, you know, it, it is a devastating dunk on Josh Hawley. There is sort of a point to it where it's, you know, it's also saying you know, he and people like him were playing footsie with this terrible force. And look what, you know, came of it. But also, you know, it's it, it's it's again sort of an element where you're giving the audience kind of the the, the popcorn element that's going to provoke a, an emotional reaction or a laugh or whatever, and you know that in turn helps underline or spread your more serious argument that you know look this vast network of people tried to throw out an American election. So this was produced by James Goldston, former president of ABC News. And, and I, I thought it was interesting that you wrote that, that Goldston and the committee knew they had a thriller on their hands. I mean, he had conspiracy, backbiting, violence, even dark comedy, and they let it play like that on screen. And of course, the Josh Hawley being a pretty good example of that. So the hearings had that whole range of emotion, reading what you wrote. The hearings gave us both the tragedy of January 6th and the absurdity the terror and the irony, the blood and the ketchup. Yes. <laughs> I really thought that captured it. I mean, so you had this range. It wasn't all one note over and over again. I mean, I thought that was great. The blood and the ketchup, the terror and the irony. You had the absurdity. I mean, the outrage and the terror. And then you just had the pure insanity of it. So they they had the kind of emotional narrative richness that you would expect from the wire or game of thrones yeah it was not usually a congressional hearing yeah because it was they they in simple terms they recognized that their job was storytelling and storytelling is not just entirely about data you know you could imagine a version of this where somebody decided oh why bother spending time on the anecdote about Donald Trump throwing a plate against the wall what does that really do you know about the, the larger charge but you know number one how can you not and 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 number two uh, you know it's these these sort of character you know e- emotional uh, just bananas jaw dropping moments they, they they are um in a kind of more indirect sense creating this sense of an atmosphere of you know a situation that was kind of out of control uh you know and so the, i'd say you know the, the ketchup does matter we need our ketchup and the fact that we we know what the reference is to the ketchup running down the wall. So, you know, again, as you, as you yeah. wrote, this is summertime. People generally want to watch things like Stranger Things because they want to escape. 
But a lot of people still watch this. I mean, how do you describe the ratings? I mean, 17 million people. Am I right about that? Watch that. Uh, 17 million for the second primetime one. I think it was a, a titch over 20 for the first one. Like mm-hmm. it's not Super Bowl ratings. Yeah. Um, well, these but are big. It is, yeah. It's huge for summer TV. It's, you know, bigger than I am pretty sure any scripted entertainment on TV now in an age of smaller ratings. I couldn't swear to this, but, you know, I think Yellowstone's the most popular scripted TV program now, and I, I don't think it draws 20 million overall for an episode. It's been, really? yeah, it's, it's, you know, I bet it's, it's a whole separate thing where, you know, in the history of TV, TV audiences individually are just smaller than they used to be. But, you know, this is bigger than This Is Us. Mm-hmm. It's bigger than anything except like NFL football. Well, let's put this in context. I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, Fox News, but you know, on any you know given night, how many people are watching the Sean Hannity show? I'm going to say Hannity, I couldn't, but, but Tucker, who yeah. I think is their, their top mm-hmm. rated program now, three, three to four, something okay. like that. And again, I'm not going to swear to that figure, but it's in that neighborhood. In, in yeah, that and range. And that's the biggest thing on cable news. Yeah. Right. So the biggest thing on cable news is three or four million. This was pulling 20 million, 17 million. I think that puts it in, yeah. in, in context. So you close your review of the January 6th hearings, uh, alluding to the, the famous, you know, Army McCarthy uh, hearings. And uh, you, you close with this line, the committee took its shot told story and trusted we still had decency at long last. Of course, a, a reference to the, you know, the famous quote, you know, at long last, have you no yeah. decency, sir? And that's the most memorable line of congressional hearings. This feels like it's more of sort of accumulation of, of facts, of lines, of, of imagery. You know, there's, there's no one line that's going to be like the Army McCarthy hearing that's going to be devastating. But there is that accumulation that seems to be taking some toll. Yes, it's it's more the collection of this scene and that scene and this water cooler moment and that water cooler moment. And, you know, look, uh, you know, I I think the easy thing to say is, oh, a a hearing these days is not going to, you know, change politics night and day. And, you know, obviously that's true. You know, America is a different place than it was in the 1950s. The media environment is different. There isn't the same sort of social consensus or, you know, agreement on a shared set of facts. But, you know, within that, there are still people that are willing to listen to things. Uh, there, are st- there are still ways of getting people's attention in ways that, that matter. And just like a, you know, TV network or producer that's, that's trying to create a, a you know, a, a, a risky, ambitious show um, with something like this, it's easy to talk yourself out of it and say, you know, this stuff never, quote unquote, moves the needle anymore. At some point, you've got to decide, listen, if, if I think this is important, I got to trust that there's an audience out there that's going to listen to it and, and, and care about it. And we tell them what the stakes are, and they're going to decide, you know, the stakes, the idea of America still having free democratic elections, that's something I'm going to care about enough to listen, you know. Okay. And, and that was that was really their, their first step, that they trusted the audience. So let's talk about how Donald Trump is seeing this. My sense is that even though there might be some people on the right who are trying to sneer and say this doesn't matter, that Donald Trump, who uh, has lived his entire life, you know, on television and watching television, that 
well, tell me how he thinks about this, because I think he kind of gets the fact that this is this uh, this is a problem for him. Trump knows television instinctively. You know, just one thing he has a gift at is knowing when something's breaking through and knowing the thing that's going to like grab people's attention. And you saw him responding in real yep. time, for instance, to Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. You know, whatever anybody else was going to say, he knew like this is something that's going to cut through. This is a like a figure that, you know, people are going to pay attention to and and believe. And I got to step in and, you know, throughout Donald Trump's presidency, he closely monitored the big TV events of his, you know, he watched, you know, Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings and, you know, was sort of taking notes on like how well he thought he was you know, de- de- defending himself and so forth. So I, I think, you know, Trump has no illusion, you know, that, that, that these hearings are, are, you know, not making a difference. I, I think, you know, he has, he has seen them as a threat and as something that's, that's gotten attention and it may have, you know, I think there's even been you know, reporting on the, on, on this, you know, it, it influenced his toying with the idea of, you know, declaring for president at a certain time, or at least talking about declaring for president as a way of getting attention back. So, you know, I, 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 th- I think he certainly sees that there is a, is, a, is a threat and a battle for attention here. He seemed to be triggered the most by Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. And, and, and I have yeah. to think, I try to think of this through the lens of how he's looking at this. And he has that obsession with people who look like they're from central casting. And I just had the sense that he's looking at her and her testimony, which was so compelling and so effective. And in many ways, this was this was a worst case scenario for him. I mean, that had to bother him a lot more than, say, Judge Michael Ludig. You just think of, you know, movies and TV shows that you've watched in the past and try to like look at this in the context of right. that, you know, young person who was working with a lot of more powerful older people and was kind of the fly on the wall and is taking a big risk as a young woman coming in and testifying. That is and, you know, just inherently just in terms of Hollywood storytelling you know, a, 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 a figure that people are going to yeah. feel sympathy for. And, you know, Donald Trump was on a reality show for 14 seasons. You know, he knows about casting. He knows about, you know, the idea that people see like a certain figure on TV and they take in, a, you know, just a, a few data points about them and they, they, they create a reaction. So, yes, I, I think, you know, when he sees on her, he sees like this is a kind of person who could be very damaging to me. Okay, so let's have a slight digression here because you also wrote a piece celebrating the 20th anniversary of what I think is the greatest television series ever, The Wire. The Wire, yes. You know, and I have to say that The Wire spoiled me in in a you know in a long lasting way because it is so outstanding. And as you point out, it's been two decades, but its reputation's only grown. Bigger. I mean, it's one of those. Uh, you, your your point. It's one of those series like the original Star Trek that I think that people are going to have a hard time realizing. I actually was a little bit surprised to uh, to be reminded that it, originally it struggled with low ratings during its its entire run. But yeah. you asked the question: Has anyone made another Wire since? I mean, really? I mean, what what made that so distinctive? And put it in some context about how extraordinary that series was. 
for starters, yes, you're right. It, it never had good ratings, and its reputation has grown since it aired. But you know, part of the thing was that it was doing something that was, you know, difficult at the time, and it's been difficult to do since, which is to, you know, create a a, a cop show that wasn't just about you know neatly solving you know a case of the week, but is you know, more in the matter of like a, a Balzac novel or something, uh, trying to create this, this this giant canvas of a society and a city and just show every part of what makes things run. And to tell a story that that has like a lot of fascinating characters, but isn't really about, you know, superheroic characters who have the power to change their destiny. A lot of what The Wire was about was you know, systems are, are really powerful and it can be really hard to, 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 to beat them. And, and it's tough to kind of make that kind of systemic storytelling into entertaining storytelling. You know, and the, the Wire pulled that off really well. Honestly, the, the, the handful of shows that I can think that have tried to do similar things since then have often been by, you know, people who are involved with The Wire, you know, David Simon's subsequent shows, you know, Treme, The Deuce, you know, it's just, it's still 20 years later, you know, if you made that 20 years later, that would still be a a risky TV show to make. Well, I I remember watching it and thinking, I have no idea what's going to happen. I have no idea. And also the complexity of it. I, I think that was also the fact that, as you described, as realistic and meticulously messy. And also yeah. there there were no simple answers there. I mean, it you weren't convinced that they made much of a difference, you know, if the cases got solved at all. But you also, you said it was not like cable dramas like The Sopranos that were built around charismatic antiheroes. So how, how, how do you compare and contrast The Wire with The Sopranos? Which, by the way, I have not yet seen. So, oh, well, so I'm saving I, it I from my old it. age. You no, know, I know. I, just, <laughs> yeah. I, I have it. I just, I'm saving it for, for, but how is it different? You know, a, a show like The Sopranos is sort of in the model of, you know, it's focused on a compelling central character, Tony Soprano, who is in many ways, uh, you know, the, the, the master of his destiny. You know, he makes decisions and they affect the the larger story people you know support him or they fight against him but they're reacting to him. it's 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 sort of you know to like put it in social science terms it's like the great man theory of history the yeah. idea that like you know there's just this one person can have grand effects on his world and yet yeah, the, the wire was you know it was it was an entertaining story of people doing things you know cops performing these painstaking investigations and the wars within drug gangs and political maneuverings at City Hall. There was a lot of exciting action going on, but it was really a story about futility, ultimately. You know, a lot of it was, you know, the, 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 the first season is kind of about we put in you know, all these hours in this intense investigation to take down a drug kingpin and here we go and we did it and the drugs are still getting sold. And, you know, it was just like you were just, you know, sweeping back a wave, you know, on the beach with a broom. And that, that that's just a big difference. 
Well, as, and also, as you point out, it's not really a cop show. I mean, yeah. it opened the door that other cop shows didn't enter. I mean, labor, education, media criticism. And each one of the episodes was, remember when the, the one scene with the new mayor is you know, sitting around there talking about fixing the schools. And I think it lasts about 30 seconds. Somebody says, no, we, we just we can't do anything about it. I mean, we don't want to go into those depths. And, and that's it. There's, there's just, mm-hmm. that, that's it. They just decide they're not going to do anything about the schools. Or when Omar is killed, and they're sitting around the newsroom and the news story comes up and what I think it gets cut, right? It's like it's like one paragraph yeah. and he doesn't even make the newspaper. I actually thought that was one of the most realistic portrayals of a newsroom that I have ever seen. Yeah, I agree. And, and kind of makes the, the point that, you know, this you know, vast story that you have been just deeply invested in for five seasons is just a just a ripple yeah. in the larger world. That was yeah, that, that was really kind of understatedly devastating. James Panawazik, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it. The book is Audience of One, Trump Television and the Fracturing of America, which has aged very well. It's, I think it's it has stood up to the test of the last few years very, very well. And of course, you can read James's work in the New York Times. Your piece on the January 6th hearings is Water Cooler TV, I think is a must read. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Charlie. I, I had a lot of fun. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.